we've had military personnel on before and we've had search and rescue people on before. And, uh, there was the situation around the fact that we didn't have search and rescue teams that were certified to go overseas. Um, that's a separate issue from what we do within our country. And we've had military leaders saying, making it pretty clear for a while now that the constant calls to them to respond to the ever-increasing number of domestic catastrophes and crises is, is not without consequences. It has an impact on what the Canadian forces do. Listen to this. Ten years ago, the military was called in an average of two times per year to deal with, you name it, okay? Think flooding, things like that. Two times per year. Five years ago, it went to four times per year. Doubled. Um, in other areas of military responsibility, right, they're all still trying to operate while dealing with the escalating number of calls for help. So ten years ago, two times a year. Five years ago, four times a year. In 2021, seven times the military got called out. So the demand is increasing, and the military is saying, you know what, we we got other things that we're supposed to be doing. So um, it would be crazy to think that the number of disasters are going to drop. So we need a better way, right? And what could that better way be? Well, maybe it's you and me. Or people like us. Anyway, let's find out. We're going to chat with Peter Kickert, who is a public policy professor at St. Francis Xavier University. Peter, thank you for joining us. Appreciate your time. Hey, thanks so much for having me. So if we go back to, like I was saying, this escalation, I mean, to date, when there's trouble and, and Canadians need help, automatically we call the military, right? That's that's what we do. And there, there's a reason, um, because they have the capacity, they have the capability, nobody else does, Right. Yeah, no, they're they're really good at it. So we have seen the uh, the CAF role into the disaster response increasing over the last you know few years um, because it has the organizational uh, capabilities to do that, the airlift to do that. But most importantly, it has the human power, very yeah. easily you know, accessible human power, expensive human power, uh, but human power nonetheless. And and like you say, they do a great job. They they answer when they're called and they come out and do what's needed. Um, but there are implications in that, and they they've made it pretty clear for a couple of years now, at least that does impact the way we do some of the other things you expect the armed forces to do. You know, absolutely. As the tempo of domestic operations increases, it does naturally take away time from from the primary role of the Canadian Armed Forces, which is, of course, preparing for combat. And it's the only government agency that does that. It's the only one that can perform that particular task of deterring and defeating our enemies. Um, and that requires very specialized skill set, very specialized training. And all this domestic response, the disaster response, you know, it does take away from that time. Plus, on the disaster management side of things, the military is very clear. It only does response. It is not doing, you know, preparation right. or recovery work, right? Just response. So, I mean, on multiple levels, it's, it's kind of an uneven fit for the calf. So that, that brings us to possibly finding a different way, a better way, and uh, brings up once again, and something we've talked about before, the volunteer corps, Canadian citizens who could, could step in. Um, it's a big job. How, how would that look? How would we manage to get to that point, do you think? So I think that's an, so I will get there in a second, but I should start off by saying, right, the Canadian Armed Forces is always going to have a role in this. They, sure. they, they, they will, right? So the cormorants they used to evacuate 300 people from BC in November 2021, great example. That's a capability that any kind of civilian force is going to be really find hard to match. The Canadian Rangers, another great example of a military, uh, unit, right, that's very active in emergency response and should continue to be so. But you're right. I think, you know, looking for these other solutions, it's, it has to start local, right? That's where disasters strike. That's where the initial response is. It's local. And I should say there's some amazing groups doing amazing local emergency response work across the country. Uh, I'm a part of Nova Scotia Ground Search and Rescue, and as a collective, we put in 17,000 hours uh, hmm. in the aftermath of Hurricane Fiona. 
But we have to build off that, right? There has to be more of these kinds of locally trained groups who are able to respond very quickly to these disaster situations. Um, ideally, they've got standardized training kind of across the country so they could be deployed in other places as required. But this kind of all-volunteer local emergency response team, I think we have to put more effort into building these, uh, building off the models that we already have in our search and rescue communities, um, et cetera. That's the thing. Like, we, we already have some of these pieces. Uh, maybe it's not all put together into one big puzzle, but we've got the pieces, right? Like you say, these organizations do exist in one form or another. Yeah, and there's been, there's been a focus on building this, you know, since COVID, right? The federal government's invested quite a lot in what's called kind of the humanitarian workforce, right? So they, they put a lot of money into the Red Cross, St. John Ambulance, Search and Rescue Volunteer Association. So there's various components of this that can be built upon to kind of create this local capacity. I think the key is, right, making it more sustainable, making it uh, with kind of scalable and standardized kind of training equipment across the country. I mean, o- other countries have, I think, done a better job at really integrating the local into their broader kind of approach to emergency response. And I think Australia, Germany are pretty common examples of that. So certainly there's structures to build off of if we want to kind of amplify our efforts at the local level. Um, but certainly we could also be thinking of new organizations that could fill this role. Um, the local is great for the initial response as well, I should highlight, right? They're good for the, the first hours and days, but eventually they get exhausted or yeah. overwhelmed. So there's still going to be the need for something else. And we do have a lot of disaster NGOs that do really good work uh, on the people side of things. But that like labor side is still something that we are lacking in this country. So when we take a look at where we are and what we're lacking, I'm thinking training and funding. Those are the two things that leap out right away. We need to make people ready to do this, and that's going to cost us money. Yeah, it's a disaster workforce, so we need to have that workforce, and, and a lot of it can be volunteer, absolutely, which, of course, saves a lot of money. Um, but at some point, I wonder, with the increasing amount of disasters, does that kind of uh, all-volunteer uh, you know, force, does it kind of start to run out of steam a little bit? And Do we have to start thinking about um, maybe semi-permanent or permanent structures? And yeah, those do cost money, and, of course, you also have a labor shortage, which makes sure. you know, the development of something like this even more challenging. I'm wondering, you know, in terms of how we would go about doing this, like, it's great, and I agree with you, we need to have volunteer, um, you know, citizen forces or groups or whatever that, that, that could help out in this situation, but how do we make sure that we're not making it worse? I can just imagine, you know, when a natural disaster strikes and we've got people who, who aren't properly trained, who aren't properly equipped, who, who really, they might end up being more of a problem than if they didn't show up. I mean, do we need to have some sort of certification or accreditation process, I'm wondering? Yeah, so I, I, you know, I will say, like, spontaneous volunteers, they come forth during every disaster, and they do incredible work, yeah. right? I mean, they, they are. They're, they're filling the sandbags. They're, they're doing the emergency relief. They're making meals. And so we see this happening everywhere a disaster strikes. People rise up to the occasion, and they do really good work. Um, sometimes, you know, there's this idea that they get in the way. I'm not sure we actually have that much proof of that. But I think the question is, how do you, how do you weld these kind of spontaneous volunteers into the more organized, yeah. specialized kind of response that we do require, right? Um, people who have the training and skills to actually go out there and clear damage or do kind of, you know, light or, or heavy kind of urban search and rescue. I mean, we, we do need groups with this, this, this very sophisticated set of training, and it has to be standardized. Um, and ideally, the local volunteers who are trained and well-equipped will be able to work with and know how to work with these spontaneous volunteers that, that do pop up during disasters. And of course, you know, like I said earlier, we don't, it would be foolish to think that the, the calls for help are going to be dropping in frequency. We're only going to see more of this, right? I mean, we all seem to know that. No, no for sure. I think we do see the, the tempo increasing, natural hazards increasing. 
the call outs increasing. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of positive, you know, developments in this space as well. Again, I cite the work of, of the disaster NGOs in this country. They do do amazing work. And, and Team Rubicon, another fantastic organization made up largely of veterans and other first responders who volunteer their time to go in and, and provide uh, response and relief in the aftermath of disasters. So great structures to build on. There just have to be more coherence to it. And I think more thought giving into, you know, kind of the, the permanency of these structures. And timing, of course. I mean, that's the thing. It's going to take time and we need to get started sooner rather than later, I think, right? Yeah, absolutely. It takes time to do the training. It takes time to organize. It takes time to procure the equipment. It takes time to, to figure out how all this is going to work from a kind of a collaboration yeah. you know, perspective. I mean, we have a hard time in this country of sharing resources. I mean, the heavy urban search and rescue teams we have in this country, they find it hard to deploy to other to domestic you know, jurisdictions. Um, we have to work on that. We have to make it easier to share resources as the hazards kind of shift throughout the country in a year. Yeah, I, I, it makes perfect sense, Peter. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. <laughs> For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.